Hello and welcome back to the Naval Rainbow Cast podcast and a warm welcome to you. If it's your first time tuning in to the podcast, whether you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Watch or listening to the podcast on podcasting platforms like Google and Apple Podcasts as well as Audible and Amazon Music, wherever you find your podcasts. And if you want to find out about how you can watch podcasts, just simply go to the Rainbow Cast player on YouTube or search New Rainbow Project on Facebook. That's if you're listening and fancy watching with subtitles. This episode of podcast is about interviewing Tiffany Nelson, who is a trainee educational psychologist and the former uh, uh, assistant Senko. Uh, she has uh, two new divergent daughters and someone who suspects she is. It was a great interview to being able to record as I want to be able to interview more people who are working with new divergent people and providing our intervention support who know the system of working with neurodivergent people like so far we've been able to get on a uh, you know occupational therapist to speech and language therapists and I'm interested in exploring more fields that work with neurodivergent people back to talking about this interview with Tiffany Nelson we were able to explore the state of the education system in Britain as she's worked as an inst- assistant Senko in school, you know, where she was able to see that from, like the case of one school, how they able to spur or to neurodivergent people to how from an uh, educational psychologist she can observe how they support in Senko's, you know, educational students with educational needs and neurodivergent conditions, which she chatted about. Intersectional issues, even as being a woman of colour and with daughter, you know, daughters who are also uh, girls of colour, and exploring the, as I said, the intersectional communities, and with her research in as a, do a trainee educational psychology research, she's been able to explore what it is like for young uh, autistic. You know, people of colour, which is something that we did touch upon. Really hope you enjoy this one. And if you've got any thoughts, questions and ideas about the podcast and this interview, like if you've got any ideas of guests that I could bring on that work with neurodivergent people or disabled people, wherever that's, as working with young people in the educational system to employment, support, mental health, and areas of social care or any like advocacy roles please do get in touch and if you have any thoughts about like the state of the education as Tiffany Nelson mentioned I'll be really interested to hear about thoughts and that as I'm really interested in exploring the you know like the institutional structures that and advocating within 
and where these are quite key things for the neurodivergent people. And so if you got anything that you want to say, just email neurorainbow at neurorainbowproject.com or you can contact at neurorainbowproject on social media platforms, bar X, or that formerly known as Twitter, and excluding ever inviting social media platforms. But as I say, for any other platforms like Threads, Facebook, uh, Instagram, TikTok, uh, Tumblr, and maybe some others like Mastodon and Blue Sky, you'll be able to find myself and, you know, New Rainbow Project on there. And if you want to easily find details about the podcast, the interviews, the guests, as well as the social media where you can find and follow me and the New Rainbow Project, just go to www.newrainbowproject.com where I'm working on uploading transcripts of the podcast, which you can read right after the interviews commence soon. With that... So would you like to start by introducing yourself? Yes, my name's Tiffany Nelson. I'm a trainee educational psychologist and I'm just going into my final year of training. Ah, but so, as you say, you're an educational psychologist and I know from the past by looking on your social media, you also had experience as being a centre in school system, people with special educational needs in the school environment and I suppose the training that you're doing to be an educational psychologist is linked into that. So, as you said, you're training to be an educational psychologist. Do you want to introduce, uh, as I said, you introduce a person and were you training for? Yes, I did in the past work as an assistant senko in a primary school. And that was something that I did for about a year. So not a lot of experience there. But I did work in schools before that as an assistant educational psychologist, which means that I worked quite a lot with SENCOs. Within that role, you're responsible for coordinating all of the special educational needs, the provisions that are put in place in schools. It's quite a big role. <laughs> They're responsible for quite a lot. And that's really about making sure that the school are meeting children's needs also assessing those needs. Sometimes that means bringing in different professionals from outside of school to come and assess needs. So that might be educational psychologists, it could be occupational therapists, speech and language therapists, lots of different professionals that they can bring in to help. Within my role now, I work alongside, I'm called into schools and link with SENCOs. So normally around assessing children, their needs, but that seems to be something that where a lot of educational psychologists, yeah. people think that is, that is our role. That's all that our role is. But it's also around helping adults who work around children to understand their needs, to make sure that the right provision is being put in place and that it's appropriate. And just reviewing that provision, keep going in and monitoring and reviewing as well. Yeah, because as I said, it's definitely quite a complex role. Because you're working with like 
occupational therapists, speech and language therapists, educational psychologists, any people who are involved in supporting people in the school environment with additional educational needs, as well working with the teachers and the parents as well to coordinate yes. what support and what to understand about the children. Quite a big environment, as I said, it's a lot lot in with your work. Yeah. So tell me about, like, as I said, you work in, you worked one year in that job, but didn't do mm. it for too long, but you still have experience of it, and you worked in this primary school environment. So yeah. can you tell me what it was like in that environment, and what were the stuff you're doing, particularly now, when you was doing it for that year? That was a COVID year, so it was even more complicated because at that point we were wearing masks, we had children in year group bubbles, and I personally found it quite difficult because a lot of the children I was working with, they need to see your face. (laughs) We're supposed to be wearing a mask over COVID and I'm trying to communicate with children and I'm, you know, they need to see my face. So it was a really difficult time within that role. There was a lot of work with parents. I'm a parent myself. I have a daughter with autism and I have a daughter who was diagnosed with ADHD a few weeks ago. She also has dyspraxia. So I do have a lot of parental experience. I understand a lot of the anxieties around sending your child to school and being worried about whether people understand them and whether that provision's been put in place. So within that role, I was able to really use that experience to talk to parents and keep the communication quite open between school and home and really listen to parents and try to give that reassurance as well. And I really felt that that was an important part of my role as an assistant SENCO. Yeah, it's definitely quite an important thing. And I guess it helps you with supporting and understanding the children you worked with. You have lived experience of being able to understand and empathise with your children, as I said, who have ADHD, sparks and autism. The experience of seeing them and seeing similar things of the children you support with going through does help. It must have been quite difficult from like the COVID-19 years because it was nothing you and your profession was prepared for. Then you were trying to learn the different things of like our teachers in the school environment or you know whoever was working with your child for additional needs and how to yeah. support them in this new environment there was quite a stress and anxious time for the children t- to learn in and awesome. know how to adapt how they teach children in that environment yeah I think it was a very difficult time I think it was difficult in that we didn't know what was happening. You know, there were times when you didn't know, is the school going to be closed? Are we going to be open? And then the government were making all those decisions really last minute. So you're trying to plan the children and then your plans are changing. And a lot of these children need to know what's happening. It doesn't help with that anxiety. Yeah. really found a lot of children were struggling with that. And it was trying to find what can we keep constant? What can we keep consistent and the same so we can give a little bit of security and some safety to help children coming into school? Yeah, the thing, rules are changing week upon week. Yeah. You're saying that you work with 
coordinating support there for parents and teachers. So you got daughters yourself who were autistic, dyspraxic and have ADHD. What are the things that, you know, when you was saying, what are the things that you was putting into supporting people with you know, additional needs, take the support we are advocating for and was able to put in. I think there was training around different conditions and what you might see, what sort of traits you might see and what they might communicate. But I think for myself, it was more about looking at children individually and understanding that all children are going to have different ways that they communicate. And it's really about being attuned with the individual child, helping teachers to understand that, you know, we may put provisions in place for a particular child. However, a lot of those provisions are going to help all of the children in the class or groups of children in the class. It's not something that's, sometimes it feels like it's quite difficult to put a provision in place, but it doesn't have to be because it's going to help other children and it's going to help the children that you're going to have the next year and the next year and you know just making those it's just making a more inclusive classroom and a more inclusive environment is really what I've tried to push when I was an assistant Senko but also in the role that I'm in now about making things more inclusive. When you were saying about the assistant Senko what is the difference between assistant Senko to Senko? The main difference that I was deputising for the SENCO. So a SENCO, they're normally a qualified teacher. They've been through that qualification and often do another qualification to be a SENCO. That's not something that I had done within my role. I had experience as a teaching assistant and also as an assistant educational psychologist. So within my role, a lot of what I was doing was actually providing some of the intervention and doing observations in class and using the, like, the psychological knowledge that I have within the role. So that was the main difference for me. I guess that's what helped you lean into and retrain as an educational psychologist to be yes. able to, yeah. I, I guess think when I went for the assistant Senko role, I always knew that I wanted to be an educational psychologist. And I knew that my role as an educational psychologist would be to go into schools and to help with making sure that the school has an assess, plan, do, review process in place. But I felt that I needed to have done some of that role and to be in school to be able to advise on how to do it. I really wanted to understand the pressures that schools would be under because I know a lot of SENCOs don't just hold a SENCO role. They're often teaching, they might be deputy heads, they might be the head of safeguarding. And I just wanted to understand the pressures and experience that for myself so that when I go into schools, I can give advice that is realistic and can actually be put in place. The same goes in schools, especially as you're saying with primary schools and maybe secondary schools. Like it's lot, there's a lot less staff in our environment, and I guess mm-hmm. when the staff teachers themselves, who I say same goes, tend to be like a full time teachers, but who may only have the chance to do the job mostly when they got to be less and picking up as extra work, and maybe that they have to engage with learning what the training is and learning Mm -hmm. how to support somebody and it's a lot of work involved with your assistant role you're looking at more of how to 
observe and find out what support the child in that classroom needs. I think because of my previous experience, I was able to create a bit more capacity within the school because I could work with children individually and I could work with children as groups because I've done some of those interventions before in the previous role. So it helped the school in that way because resourcing is quite an issue in schools today. Yeah, it seems like a troubling issue with resourcing. Then that is something that particularly affects people with additional learning needs. If you've got issues where you like certain resources, then you might not be able to get the right optimal support that you want to give. You want to be an educational psychologist. From that, you want to be able to understand to the educational psychologist, like what type of well, does that give you, so, like, actually work to assess and diagnose, you know, like children and screen children from additional learning needs and try to see if they've got neurodivergent conditions? What are the things that people should know about the role of an educational psychologist? I think, like the role of a SENCO, it's very complicated <laughs> in that there's quite a wide scope of what we can do. So we are mainly known for assessing children. And I know you've mentioned about diagnosing neurodevelopmental conditions. That's not something that we do, although we do work with children who have those conditions and we can help with you know, what provisions could be put in place. In terms of like diagnosis, we would look at specific literacy difficulties, dyslexia. Those are the conditions that we can diagnose. But when we do assess children and we write reports, we will write the reports based on what needs we see. And sometimes the reports that we write can be used by other professionals who do diagnose for those conditions. We can help to inform those assessments. The other parts of our role can be quite systemic. So looking at the organisation of the school. We can look at how SENCOs and how the schools are assessing need and identifying needs in children and the support that's being put in place. We can also help with training and professional development of teachers and teaching assistants. We also do research, different types of developments. We can help the schools with how they're organising assessments and provisions that they put in place. We do try to do more systemic work. A lot of the time we are called in to look at children individually. So it is a big scope of what we can do. Yeah, I've been able to have interviews on this podcast with occupational therapist and speech-language therapist, as from what you said already, that the role of an educational psychologist is probably when the in terms of people that can intervene and support the environment of a young person with a new development condition, which they're more complex and less understood of what that role gives and what that role can do. But being able to have an educational psychologist when it was in school, something I remember in terms of when it was getting diagnosed with dyspraxia, like an educational psychologist was able to look at the school environment, make sure the teachers were able to understand what dyspraxia is. I'd say from just doing this interview, it's something that I still don't know a lot about. And this is one thing that with doing this podcast, well, I thought it's quite good to discuss it with somebody yeah. who is a 
educational psychologist. Obviously, I'm still training. Whenever I'm asked the question, I'm always like, oh my gosh, what am I going to say? Because there's just so much that we can do. I know I personally like to work more systemically. I like to do training with teachers and with teaching assistants, because I just think if we can help people to understand conditions or just to help just with how to be attuned with children and to see what we can put in place. I mean, sometimes we put things in place and it doesn't work, but you know, you need to respond to the child and you want to be child led and just being able to understand that and really helping the adults to be able to do that. As much as I love working with children individually, so much fun. I love it. And it's really great to work with children individually because I find I can work with the parent and I work with the school. We often have consultations where we have like a meeting and everyone comes together so we can learn about the child from different perspectives and see how the child behaves differently in different perspectives. I really enjoy doing that and I can advocate for that child. But I feel when I can work on a more systemic level, it's helping that understanding of all of the adults so it can help more children and change environments and cultures that we have in schools. That's an important thing to do. It is quite big things to like, as you say, you're still training. And I guess you find it's something that you're working out the answers to some of these questions, yeah. because there is definitely quite some big things asked when you're still learning. It's good to be able to have a chance for somebody who's still learning about these things and yeah. still have quite good experience of knowing about these things. You lived experience from working in a school environment, yeah. having neurodivergent children yourself. The case-by-case basis, working with individual children can help attributes of your job. It is quite important to understand the uh, culture and the environment of mm. the world of the children in the educational system. So when looking at things systemically today what are the things that are motivating you to uh, education and psychology that's a really good question <laughs> i'm motivated by the things that are barriers austerity is one thing that's had a real impact on like the educational system and i think all systems really it's one thing that i've experienced as a parent is seeing the difference in how my children were diagnosed and looked after after being diagnosed. So my youngest daughter was diagnosed with autism when she was two, which was 10 years ago. And I had all the support. I had so much support that was put in place and it really helped me to be able to support her and helped me with an understanding of autism, which I just didn't have at the time. But my daughter, who was diagnosed with dyspraxia last year and ADHD this year, haven't even had a leaflet. <laughs> There's literally been nothing. And, you know, I'm really fortunate and I'm privileged in that I have the education that I do. You know, I've I've known about these conditions before she was diagnosed and I was able to pursue these um, diagnoses and the assessments for her. And I had to put up with an awful lot of fighting to get her where she is now and to get her the support that she has. But so many people don't have that privilege. And I'm finding the parents that I'm working with now, some of them have had to go private to get their diagnoses. And not everybody has the privilege of being able to do that either. 
but going private, they've got diagnoses and they've been able to get the support that they've needed. I find that motivates me because I want to help. I want to make sure that children who are in school are getting the support that they need and those parents are getting the support to be able to support them as well. And the more stories that I get from parents of how difficult it's been, the more it makes me want to do the work that I'm doing and make things easier for them and for the adults in school to be able to support as well. Those are my main drives. Also, it is definitely something particularly important person issue when it comes to neurodivergent people and Mm. disabled people, particularly when you're looking at young starting life right now Mm. in terms of getting diagnosis and getting after diagnosis support. Something that you notice that the educational system is lacking that probably you notice that when you look at like whether it's like harms in terms of like mm. the mental health and diagnosis support that you can get through the NHS system. If people go in private, that's one strand of where it's been affected and then you've mm. got like issues of poverty. So I see in terms of like doing research on it, it's very important to be able to educate people around how it's affecting young neurodivergent people. What are the things around that that needs to be changed, the problems that need to be looked at, and what things could be improved from your observations? I think the main thing I've had, especially this year with parents, is having to wait so long for a diagnosis. Some people are waiting two, three years, they're being told the waiting list is. In the meantime, they're not sure what to do. They're really not sure. I think in my role, I look at needs. I'm not looking at a a diagnosis or a label. Being able to assess and see what needs are there and helping schools to be able to provide for these children based on their need rather than having to have a diagnosis is really an important part of my work. On top of that, one thing I didn't say is part of the role of the EP um, is uh, writing psychological advice for EHCPs. And that's quite a big part of my role. A lot of people have to wait for that as well. Some of those deadlines for getting EHCPs, it's not always met because there aren't enough educational psychologists. So another thing that's needed is the funding from the government to train more educational psychologists, which is something that's being spoken about at the moment. It's about retaining educational psychologists within the workforce in like local authorities ensuring that the workload is not so high by having more educational psychologists this is another issue which again is it's coming from government funding which is also needed within the NHS to help with waiting lists of the diagnosis. With more people discovering whether them they servicing adult years and neurodivergent we got more children have been recognised as neurodivergent as there's more awareness of what ADHD to dyspraxia to dyslexia and autism traits. That's something that's definitely driving a number of people needing a diagnosis or needing mm-hmm. support. But as I said, that there's not enough funding being invested into yeah. having enough uh, people trained. It's quite important to be able to provide support before diagnosis. Because when you were working in the school environment that like if you can introduce some support that 
could be beneficial to all the people in the class. And then yeah. if you got that lack of diagnosis, then that can be something that can benefit people who are underdiagnosed in our class. Yeah, definitely. I always feel like when I'm in my work, I'm looking at need. You don't have to have a diagnosis to be autistic. You don't have to have a diagnosis to be dyslexic or dyspraxic. But we look at what the need is and make sure that we're meeting those needs. And in the meantime, while you're in a waiting list, waiting for the diagnosis, then hopefully the needs are still being met. I think that's something from what you observed. You wish people were to learn and listen from that and to be changing the culture of how yes. people perceive and they would road divergent people. When you were mentioning the EHCPs, can you just give me a definition of what an EHCP is? Education Healthcare Plan, it used to be a statement a few years ago. It's a legal document that is there that outlines a child's needs under four different areas. That's cognition, learning, communication and interaction, physical and sensory, social, emotional and mental health. So four different areas of need. And it stipulates the provision that schools should be putting in place for the child. It's a document that stays with the child until they finish school up to the age of 25. The idea is that this is So, for instance, I'm just thinking of my own daughter who is going into year eight. So she had her EHCP at primary school. So that detailed to the primary school what they should put in place. And then moving up to secondary school, all of that stayed with her. And they put the same provisions in place at secondary school. I remember, like, having that used to be referred to the statement. The labels changed more recently. I remember that as the document of what support that could be offered to me and in terms of my dyspraxia and autism for something that you could be able to give psychological advice to when you were right to whoever was the person putting in that support. One thing um, as a parent, one thing I've noticed is I thought (laughs) that this would help my daughter in school having an EHCP or a statement it was when I first had it. I thought, you know, she'll be fine. You know, everyone's going to know what her needs are because it's written on a piece of paper. (laughs) But obviously needs change as the child grows and an EHCP is reviewed annually. But I think some of the things I didn't understand was that adults working with her may not have the same understanding of her conditions as others. I think it's just really important that anyone who's working with children who have additional needs have some kind of training or understand the conditions and the children that they're working with, because you can have supports, <laughs> but it still needs to be tailored and attuned to that child. That is something important. Like sometimes, you know, it can still be the pick of the crop of the teacher. Like there can be some teachers who are quite empathetic and able yeah. to learn, but some teachers maybe not learn at all being willing to adapt their styles of teaching to be yeah. a bit more inclusive and empathetic to what that child yeah. that all children deserve that to have teachers to have the equal understanding. Maybe that's something else you've seen with the, the area of austerity, that if like, there was less pressure on teachers and to more able to get training with days off to actually have enough teachers there 
thought they could be able to do that without any external pressure. Definitely. I'm sure I'd seen something going around on Twitter about introducing more training, like as part of teacher training on different neurodevelopmental conditions, because teachers don't actually get that training as part of their standard training. They don't get that or they get a small amount. So it is quite difficult. There are a lot of demands on teachers. You were talking on the podcast previously, some of those young neurodivergent disabled activist and campaigners mm-hmm. was discussing of oh it's motivating her to focus on transitional sport from college from Tumney or Intercom to a college. But she also was saying that in school, the recommends was in secondary school and primary school. So teachers like haven't before they have gotten to be able to be a teacher in art school when they were training to be a teacher that you know doesn't include training to support people with disabilities or neurodivergent children when you mention that it can be something impactful yeah definitely I think so because a lot of teachers I work with it's not that they don't care they really do care they may not have some of the training that they need they don't have the resources and, and there's just so much stress. So it's difficult. And I just think we need an overhaul of the system. It needs to be done differently. And I feel within my role as an educational psychologist, that's where I can be used. When I use when I have consultations with schools and teachers, I can help to inform and do some of that training informally in those conversations. That's something that can be quite a big part of my role. And informally, it's quite helpful then. You could be able to listen to people and mm. address any questions that people may yeah. have. And that went to an understanding with teachers, yeah. even though that lack of having enough educational psychologists and to be able to do that informal support for teachers, then it can be quite difficult Saying about your daughter and how recently was getting diagnosed from dyspraxia and ADHD when he was diagnosed and understanding from your job already. What's the things that when your daughter was diagnosed at the age of two with autism, what was the stuff that back then when you was less understanding of your uh, training as you have now about autism, understanding less of what you do now. What was it like then getting a diagnosis at the age of two? Yeah, this was quite some time ago. I, my daughters are very close in age. They're only 10 months apart. And I just noticed quite a difference with my younger daughter. And there were just some of her behaviours that I just felt, I'm not sure what's going on here. And I found myself on the internet, Googling things, looking things up autism and OCD was coming up and I thought she's only little <laughs> this can't mean this I didn't have an understanding and when I look back now what I was seeing were sensory behaviors I was swaddling her because they told me to swaddle her because that's what you're supposed to do with children apparently so I'm there wrapping her up in this blanket trying to make her comfortable but she doesn't like being touched and she kept trying to get herself out of it. And anytime I changed her nappy, she was 
I thought she was fighting me, but it's just that she didn't like to be touched. And a lot of what I was seeing was like a tactile, that response to me touching her, trying to cuddle and kiss her because she's a little baby. So I didn't have the understanding at that point. I didn't know... I don't know. I think I was using the internet to try to understand what was going on. I was seeing autism and I was thinking, this is what's going on here. Um, my little girl's autistic. But I didn't know how to say that to anybody. I didn't know how to explain it in words. I didn't have the terminology. She was having eye tests and hearing tests because people thought she couldn't hear. But she was too engrossed in what she was doing every time we called her name. I took her for the hearing tests and the way that she was behaving in those appointments, they were concerned about her behaviour and asked me if I wanted a referral to a paediatrician. I was really relieved that somebody else brought it up because I'm not too sure at what point I would have had the confidence to go to a doctor and ask. I had the referral to the paediatrician which happened within four months because this was 10 years ago. I was seen by the paediatrician. I had help at home for four months and then she was diagnosed. So between being asked if I wanted for her to be referred and diagnosis was eight months. So not to say it was easy, but it was nothing like it's like now. It was quite quick. I guess you're quite pleased to be able to an earlier diagnosis and to be put in from an early and because not so many parents have the privilege of understanding that their child is autistic at the age mm. of two and something that they only got diagnosis at the age of ten roughly then there was something you were quite glad that you was able to research and pick up these traits earlier people should be quite comfortable knowing that your child's autistic from early ages sometimes not always there's that uh, happiness for parents sometimes can be a sensitive thing to be honest it was difficult because she was very young and I started having concerns from probably the age of 12 months and I was told by lots of different family members oh you know she'll grow out of it don't worry just wait and see but I just knew there was something I couldn't put my finger on it. And I was so fortunate to have the internet. <laughs> I know people think the internet is evil sometimes, but for me, being able to have the internet, and I think it was parent groups that I was looking at and reading what parents' experiences were and thinking, oh my gosh, this is similar to what I'm experiencing, but I just don't have the words to explain it. Because she's a girl, and at that time... Even the paediatrician said to me, we don't normally see this in girls. This is very strange. <laughs> so it was all very new. And that's really what kind of sparked my interest in wanting to research autistic girls. And that's where it came from, because I couldn't find much information at that time. Yeah, definitely the back then, only 10 years ago, there wouldn't be now as much on autistic girls and like quite amazing now in the short period of time that the representation of autistic girls and women have increased been starting to see autistic women a lot more like in the last 
two years or 12 months even lot of autistic women and they're realizing later on in life that they're autistic mm. and searching out the diagnosis for so long there's been at inequality and mm. uh, it's taken far too long to get to this point where autistic women and girls are getting a diagnosis and uh, that must have been quite stigmatizing if when you were started I was young and people who were uh, helping you with your child and helping you learn about an autistic child didn't understand yeah. as much of how we're presenting young girls. Yeah, it was different. I mean, everywhere she was in a special nursery, which was full of boys. <laughs> everywhere she went, it was always boys. All the play schemes were boys. So she was always playing with boys <laughs> until she was at a mainstream school where she was around a few more girls. And I was just trying to find out as much as I could finding out about masking, something I just didn't know, didn't know what that was. I think the only literature out there at the time was like Tony Atwood. So I learned a lot from him. No, I'm not looking at him now. <laughs> now I'm able to find a lot more of autistic adults. And that's where I've learned the most. You know, that's what I've really valued. That's really helped me to understand my children. I was just saying that from the information you can hear right now, online and that's been where I learned myself about being autistic as mm. it's something that even back then when I was 10 even then it only took me until I was 18 where I started to properly understand what autism is and how it affects me mm. and mass as you say something that I learned at the start of becoming an adult then of how that affects me mm. so when you was daughter was young like she was in male dominated spaces and you know with like around lot boys always like then not being able to see as many autistic when environment and the autistic people of color what was that experience mm. for you and your daughter of having quite a male dominated spaces I don't know what it was like for her. She looked comfortable, but she's very good at that. <laughs> so I'm not sure. She had a lot of little friends who were boys and she seemed quite happy. Thinking for myself, what I found difficult was I found a lot of parents, they would always look at her and say, oh, she's got really good eye contact and she talks. Oh my goodness, she talked. How did you make her talk? <laughs> and I always would think, why do you think this was something that I did? Like, I don't understand why, how can I make a child talk? I always found that really, really difficult with some of the parents. Always looking to me as I can help them with their children. I don't know if it was how my daughter came across or if it was just me because I'm just naturally always wanting to help. <laughs> but I think I found that particularly difficult because what I found is that everybody looked at her and thought oh she can talk and oh she has eye contact and oh she smiles but they didn't see what was difficult for her it was hard yeah <laughs> then you've probably noticed even though as you got an early diagnosis then there may be you know, like elements of masking I guess a lot of her treats maybe to others around her that even though you noticed as a parent you noticed that she was autistic as a child, but sometimes people might not always see that, especially people who only see a small bit of your child. So that was yeah. the thing that 
her treats for us now is visible and because if she doesn't so I support needs and when people can see her like speaking autistic person, there's still yeah. a lot of stigma around that and yeah. how people went to make a child speak and act mm-hmm. like other people around him. Yeah. And helped you in, in terms of like how you do your job now and in terms of how you approach things with parents from those early years with yes. your daughter yourself of how we went to look at making sure that well yes you want the best for the parent and make sure they got to support and understand their child but also for making sure that their child is able to develop on their own terms and try not making them to talk and do certain things you would expect and like a typical person would expect from a child yeah I think I didn't have all of the words and the terminology at the time but I knew that when people were saying to me how did you make her speak it just made me feel really uncomfortable because I just thought how can I make her speak and why would I want to make (laughs) why would I want to make her speak it just sounded really weird but now I have more of an understanding of that felt uncomfortable to me because it's me trying to make my child neurotypical or trying to make her fit everybody else's ideals and yeah no (laughs) I'm not cool with that at all not as a parent at all or professionally (laughs) it's all things for your daughter and you like simply want her just to be healthy and happy as a child and it's how you want to change things for the culture how people see autistic and it would take the urgent people from when we've been talking about Growing up, what has it been like from yourself? Have you been learning and adapting from things as well as like learning as a parent uh, in a professional way of through like mm. your job, but also for yourself who's learned as a parent on a job about Axia, ADHD and autism? I would say specifically about my training course that I'm on now, I'm studying with the Tavistock Hortman NHS um, Trust. And a lot of our training is around our psychological skills, but also thinking about like the unconscious. Some of those skills that we use are around ourselves in the role. So sometimes we're thinking about our emotions when we're around in consultation meetings with schools and parents. We might think about the emotions that are evoked within us, within those meetings. And what does that mean? And I find I'm somebody who's quite, I'm quite attuned to other people. I pick up on emotions really easily. I have had to have supervision afterwards to try to unpick why am I feeling the emotions that I'm feeling? I actually find that really helpful and useful in terms of supporting children with neurodevelopmental conditions because it's made me realise maybe sometimes where children are masking because I'm picking up on things that I have felt as a parent and things that I've seen my child also experiencing, then it's made me also have to reflect back to myself and think about myself as a child. I've sort of come to this realisation now that I'm not diagnosed, but I am neurodivergent as well. I know I'm not neurotypical at all, (laughs) but it's making me more realise the traits that I do have and what I share. And I've been able to actually sort of use that 
within my role. So from you saying you've been a divergent yourself, and that's something that it's common for the parents themselves to understand that Dini were divergent, you know, yourself. So what are the dates that you've been picking up from wherever it's like you work and from your children that you were any with divergent? So what are the traits mm. that you show yourself? It's a good question. It's like the doctor asked me the other day. <laughs> I think some of it is the routines, I've never referred for myself as having routines. I always refer to having rituals, but never put that down to being autistic and now realise, oh, yeah, (laughs) because I have to do things sort of in the same order, the same way. And if I don't, I find that extremely difficult. I have to have things planned in advance so it was really helpful the way that you helped me to plan for this podcast yeah it was perfect exactly what I needed I need to know what's going to happen in advance and how I can deal with it and how I can structure things I like structure and I like systems and, and I'm very orderly and I like to create systems and I'm quite intense with my focus on the things that I like which I think is supposed to be what they call special interests. (laughs) But again, these are things that it didn't click for me until recently, and I'm 43, so it's taken a while. But I've always been that way from a very young age. I was reading from the age of three or four, and I used to write stories. I did that from a very young age and used to have all these different books that I wrote my stories in, and I used to give myself challenges about how much I would write, how long it would take me. That's some things. I won't go into everything. We'll be yeah. here forever. <laughs> <laughs> when you, like, thought, like, you only started to notice this recently, it must be quite something, like, your daughter's been diagnosed for roughly, like, yeah. like you know, the fine working out for yourself, that you're uh, neurodivergent yourself. But is it like a thing because you're starting to get to teenage years and then that can so mm. more more noticeable adult traits and you're thinking more about how you mask yourself and working doing the training for your job in terms of education psychology to help you to understand how you masked and the social emotional skills and the sensory stuff you picked up on. Yes, I think everything you just it's the masking part because I'm doing my thesis now which is on autistic masking and this time last year I completed the CAT-Q which is a questionnaire that looks at autistic camouflaging. I completed it just to see whether it would be something I would use in my research but as I'm completing it I thought oh my gosh this is me I didn't have the words for this and this didn't make sense it's like I think there's one of the questions do you feel like you're performing And I thought, yeah, I do. (laughs) Because when I'm around people, I love being around people. I do enjoy it. But it takes a lot of energy. So I can go out. I can have fun around people. But when I come home, leave me alone. (laughs) Don't talk to me. Leave me alone because I need to, like, I need to get my energy back. (laughs) It's really draining. I just found by doing that questionnaire and just more research more of the reading that I'm doing around masking it made me realize that oh my gosh I thought I was great socially (laughs) I was really good but 
I'm realizing that yes, as I was when I was younger, I didn't speak when I was younger, like really young. I only spoke to certain people around adults. I just didn't speak. And I remember how that felt. And I'm looking at some children that I'm working with now and I can see where they're nervous to speak. And we've recently learned about situational mutism. And as we're learning that, I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, that was five and six year old me who didn't speak. It took me a while to find that confidence and to find my voice. And I forgot what that felt like. (laughs) I completely forgot until I've been working with children and I've had this training and it's brought me back to triggering those emotions and how I felt and that anxiety as a child. So this this training course is quite a lot. It's very intense (laughs) emotionally. It's made me reflect an awful lot. And I think it's on the reflection and understanding masking that now I'm able to look back and think that's me. <laughs> I can see how it can be quite tense. It must be quite something. The wolf to find him like you are, and they were divergent, autistic. Like I find it's, it's quite amazing. All your life, you might have thought that you might not know you're autistic and mm. working in the field of working with neurodivergent people. It's like naturally you were drawn into neurodivergent people and interested in it. But later you realised that's yourself. You definitely. And again, the internet, just seeing autistic adults online talking and thinking, yeah, that's me. Oh, that's me. And then I'm thinking, okay, is it just me? Because I'm seeing this everywhere and I'm just making it up. As you see with the internet, it is quite important thing because like talking to people like yourself about Mm. these conversations wouldn't happen right now because it's very connecting and finding people looking at what people are saying and feel makes you feel less alone I think as you know you just need to filter out that negativity if you can (laughs) online but you know once you can filter things out there is a lot I mean I remember when the internet was new (laughs) I'm saying I'm making myself sound really old now but I remember it you know there being so much warning about oh this is dangerous and it's evil or it's dark or whatever but I've always thought you can find anybody online so whatever group you belong to however you identify you're going to find that online I know when I was a teenager we didn't have the internet and if you were at school and you were different you were on your own and you were isolated but now we've got the internet and you can find other people like you obviously you have to be careful <laughs> that people are who they say. from young age you experience situations mutism and then you grew up with like having less people around you that when they would take virgins you didn't have that space of feeling less isolated in terms of never knew divergent people like yourself so you can find friends and talk to before the internet and when you were a child yourself, sometimes things might have been quite isolating for yourself. When I look back as, as being a child, I had a lot of friends. I always had friends, but we moved around quite a lot. So I was always having to make friends. And I think I've always looked back and I was good at that. But I learned how to fit in and had to because... I moved from London to New York, which was a completely different culture and had to learn to fit in. I spoke differently. They teased me. I had to change how I spoke and fit in. I came back to England, (laughs) had to change my voice again. (laughs) (laughs) I've gone to schools that were completely white. I'm the only black child there. And I've got to, again, 
mask and you know change myself to fit in I've gone to grammar school where everyone was middle class and had money and I didn't and I've had to fit in there so I've just been really accustomed to fitting in I haven't really felt isolated I've maybe at times not felt I could be my full self you really found ways of finding social skills of how to be resilient and found ways of like making things work in different environments that you could end up feeling isolated say that maybe being the only like British person in a school in New York to being the only black person to sometimes being the only black neurodivergent person that can be quite a difficult thing. Yeah yeah definitely and I think that's kind of in a way inspired the research that I'm doing which is really looking at intersectionality and thinking about those different identities and and how that can shape your experience because I think that's been quite big for me. (laughs) As you say when you was getting your daughter's diagnosis of autism and like you said that only recently that you had stuff coming out about women who are autistic Mm -hmm. there's still a lot of issues around actually in you know women who are people of colour and Mm -hmm. have antivist intersectionalities represented because still a long way of getting know autistic women of colour represented and that's something that you still would like for your daughters to see more autistic women of colour on screen represented you were researching on intersectionality so can you give insight into where you're looking at with that and what stuff you found out I've always been interested in autistic masking I decided about five years ago that's what my research would be on I think more recently I've learned about intersectionality so intersectionality is um, how all the different identities that we hold how they can overlap and intersect to give us privilege or to oppress so when you think about how you may be discriminated against as a woman and then thinking about how you may be discriminated against as someone who's black and then putting those two identities together, the sort of discrimination that you're facing as a black woman, as opposed to maybe being a black man, how that's experienced. So with my research, I'm looking at black autistic girls. So thinking about those three different identities, being autistic, being black and being a woman what impact does that have on a girl in school who's also trying to mask their autistic traits I'm trying to look at something quite complicated and it hasn't been done before I've been through all the literature and I can't find anything that's been done before but my main reasoning is when it comes to most of the literature and in society in general black women are not normally listened to and not normally seen I thought it would be really important. Obviously, I'm a black woman, so it's close to home <laughs> and my girls are black girls. So I thought it would be a demographic that would be good for me to research. It's like very few times to when you were divergent people when you're doing like a feces or like mm. doing any type of thing that is research yeah. and be like documenting stuff. There's very few times years by a new, neurodivergent person and then very few times neurodivergent women to a black neurodivergent woman. And then 
because that then is quite important that people like yourself are able to put these questions and research and find answers because like more conversations around autistic mm-hmm. women and autistic neurodivergent women of colour need to be un- understood and have their needs understood yeah. and like the experiences you documented you haven't been able to find much of how it's done before maskings quite a big play into it and it's yeah. definitely quite complicated as you say with like maybe like a country like Britain because mm. if like you got to larger cities where it might be a bit more basically diverse and the mm. geographic element of when it comes to real towns of Britain mm. there's le- less diversity of colour and different cultural backgrounds and so that's the element of the complexity of the research. Yes when I look at it and I'm writing my thesis at the moment which is a mammoth task as I'm trying to dig down and I'm thinking about the masking element we have autistic masking but then as black people we mask within white spaces to fit in and to be accepted And as women, we do that in male dominant spaces as well. So what impact does that have when you have all of those identities? And how how does that impact a person when they're in the UK education system? Does that have an impact on diagnoses? Does it have an impact on support that's given? And how does that, how is that experienced by the individual themselves? And I think those are questions we don't have answers to. I know through the research I was doing last year, I know the National Autistic Society has called for more research on ethnicity and autism, and so has the Autistic Girls Network. So there are calls for it out there, and I know some people are covering this in their theses at the moment, but I've tried to really narrow down on the demographics so I can find something, you know, I really want to be able to amplify Black women. You could see you posing question about it on social media and it's relevant to the includers or some something yeah. to talk about. Understanding the, the visual experience of that as well as like the experience of like access to diagnosis and support for autistic women. There's also the element of the layers of oppression, like with the autistic mask and then finding ways of like protecting yourself from prejudice because of race and living in a patriarchy as a woman. Then there's elements of looking at the emotional and well-being and elements of trauma and mental health of young women. That's what the importance of having research that looks into stuff like this. Definitely. The part that I'm writing with my research at the moment, I'm looking at like historical context of embodied experience and I've looked at that for black people, which obviously goes back to colonialism. And we're thinking about slavery and enforced labor, thinking about context for women and having control over your bodies, which is something that's still in the news now and is still an issue now. The next thing I'm looking at is the embodied experience for autistic people and thinking about locus of control. So how much control do you have as an autistic person over your schooling, over your school experience. I know a lot of autistic children are struggling in school with the way the education system is right now. And there's a lot of historical context, I think, around that, which I'm taking very slow because I find it quite painful. Just reading through all the journals and reading stories, it's not nice. It can be quite painful 
And like it must be difficult for me, like researching it from a historical experience because like it is quite hard to find the guess the histories of autism that actually looks at people rather than the statistics and yeah. the jargony research and like yeah. the diagnosis rather than the lived experiences yes. and the people who are autistic, like Black disabled people, black, they were divergent people. Mm. It's something that the history isn't documented. It's difficult. It's out there, which is cool. There's so many people that have written so well, and it's great that it's all out there. It's just bringing it all together, fitting it into my study, picking out the parts that are relevant. But I just think it's so crucial and important. I chose a particular type of analysis for my research because I thought it was really important to think about embodied experience and to think about how we experience things in terms of time and space. I don't think we can really understand where we are right now unless we understand that historical context and how things are embodied. And I think especially for an autistic person, that embodiment is so different And I just really want to be able, I haven't interviewed anybody yet, so I don't have my data yet, (laughs) but I do feel that that's something that will come out in the data. You like to look at things systemically from how you as an educational psychologist and somebody who works in the space of supporting neurodivergent people and understanding the historical context to it. It's a more social history of neurodivergent intersectional groups throughout Mm -hmm. history does help you in terms of understanding the systemic issues as well as it links into when you're talking about austerity as something you seem to be interested in evidence for what stuff may need to be changed and any recommendations to be changed that can actually be understanding of all these different complex components Definitely. And I think that's really what I want my research to do is really to highlight those voices, but also from those voices to find those recommendations that we can put in place in schools that will not only serve the group that I'm going to be focusing on, but just for everybody, for everyone in schools to make that change. For more people who went to understand and learn a bit more about the intersectional issues regarding autism and neurodivergence. Is there any things that you would recommend people to look up and research if they want to find more on this topic? I just ordered a couple of books. I've got a few books arriving today. So there's a new book that's just come out called Autistic Masking, but it's Amy Pearson and Kieran Rose. It came out about a month ago. So I know they cover intersectionality within that book and it looks at some of that historical context as well. So I've just ordered that. I've also got a book called Disability Critical Race Theory, which looks at the intersectionality of race and disability. So it goes into ableism and racism there are a few different versions. I've got one which is around the education system. I do have a webinar on YouTube, which is about intersectionality and culture. 
it's not specifically around um, neurodivergent conditions, but it was a webinar that I did just to try to help in educational settings, just to have an understanding of those two concepts. You want to encourage people to get in the fields of being a centre or educational psychologist. What things would you recommend people if they want to look into getting into these fields or learn a bit more about being a uh, educational psychologist uh, or a centre, what things would you like give the tips and advice for that? With educational psychology, it's really having that experience of working with children, but it's not just having the experience, it's how you're applying psychology within your role. For myself, I worked in schools for a few years and then I applied and, and got my place on the course. You have to be really motivated to want to advocate for children. It's not an easy job. <laughs> um, a lot of girls on my course, female dominated <laughs> within this field. A lot of people are motivated by the experiences they themselves have had within education. And some of those experiences have not been very positive. So it's normally around wanting to make that change. And a lot of people see educational psychologists as agents for change. And I know for myself, the I always have big dreams, so I want to change the system. I want to see a different educational system. And I also want to see a different system for how we're diagnosing conditions. From that, being a new parent and new divergent children, so mm. what are the like, main things of advice would you give to parents who want to learn a bit more about the new divergent children or like, get them support in terms of getting them a diagnosis? or getting them support in school, what advice would you give them? I think one of the biggest bit of advice would be always trust your guts. I feel there were a lot of times people said to me, oh, no, they're fine, don't worry, they'll grow out of it, or no, it's just you, you're just anxious, you're worried. But trust your guts, you know your child. So when you have concerns, just make sure you do raise them. Don't be put off. <laughs> Not everybody understands, you know, within these systems and the traits because of the diagnostic tools that we have. I don't think they really cover everything that we see in these conditions. So just trust your gut, keep speaking, keep communicating and keep pushing. And it does feel like a fight some of the time. Sometimes you work with professionals where... <laughs> Not that it's easy, but everyone's on the same page. <laughs> so it runs a lot smoother. And I would say that was the experience I had with my youngest daughter. But then there are other times where you really have to talk about what you're, how it might differ from another child who's typically developing the same age. I would say listening to the autistic adult community, that has really helped me with articulating and understanding things from that perspective any sort of books would really have to be come from autistic adults yeah is there any particular books that in terms for autistic parents who want to learn a bit more is there any particular ones you would recommend i know there's a new one that kathy wassell i'm not sure if i'm pronouncing her name correctly but she is from the autistic girls network she has just released a book a couple of months ago. For myself, I found Temple Brandon really helpful when my daughter was really young. I looked at a lot of her YouTube videos 
I also liked the book, The Reason I Jump. And I found with that book, it helps me to try and think of things from her perspective. So yeah. what are the things that you risk people to take away from this interview? That educational psychologists are really well placed in schools to make those kind of changes, you know, to try to change things systemically, changing those environments and cultures and understanding I think that's one thing that I think is really important to take away about the role. But really thinking about those different types of identity, the different facets of identity that can shape experience. So in particular, my research, obviously looking at black females who are masking in school, that's that's one demographic. (laughs) There's lots of different identities that come together to shape an experience and that can either help with getting resources because I know for myself I hold some privileges that I think have really helped me in terms of getting those diagnoses and the support in school but then there are so many other identities that can oppress and discriminate and I think it's really important to hold in mind all of those different facets of identity when we're thinking about neurodivergence. To Mm. conclude on is if you could change one thing for neurodivergent or disabled people, what would that one thing be? I only think big. <laughs> it would be a society that was much more inclusive, that didn't question difference, because those are some of the some of the discourses that I see online that I don't like are around questioning difference, like why are we seeing more people being diagnosed? questioning people's sexuality, how people identify in terms of their gender. I just wish those questions weren't asked and we just were a society that accepted people for who they were and embraced that people are different and why would I want to be like everybody else? Uh, And is there anything you haven't got to say that you went to say on a podcast? Yeah, in terms of my research... (laughs) I am still looking for participants. I'm looking for black autistic girls who are aged 16 to 18 who believe that they're masking their autism in school. So if you are one of those girls and you'd like to participate in the research, then please just reach out to me. From that is if anyone wants to follow on social media where people can follow you online. Yeah, on Twitter, which is T Nelson. TEP, which is Trainee Educational Psychologist. On TikTok, but I also, it's a business. I run a business um, selling gemstone beads for jewelry making. (laughs) So my TikTok is TJ's Beads. All right. Bye. Okay. Okay. See you. Bye.
And just like that, that's the end of the podcast interview that I hosted with uh, Tiffany Nelson. But if you happen to go to the New Rainbow Project website that is now live and been re-updated, you can find ways of going to find out how to different channels to watch it. So if you go to the website at newrainbowproject.com you can find by going down to uh, the down on homepage to where it says explore the rainbow you can find a button called the new rainbow cast if you click on that it'll take you right to down to the button with about the podcast and how to listen and watch where you can also find details about the friends of the podcast which are the podcast guests you can click on a select amount of bios where you can click and get to know the guests and then you can also go down and when you're on that thing of you know explore the rainbow you can get details of how you can interact and you know find the different social groups by you know, going to Clydeoscope. There's a button of Clydeoscope and which gives you the groups of how you can get the different social communities and join in the podcast uh, conversation and the conversation that I'm creating with the New Rainbow Project. Also, if you go down to New Rainbow Cast Play, which you can get the Rainbow Cast Player, gives you a link to the page on the top that is the new rainbow cast play player which can give you the videos of all podcast episodes of how you can easily find them which gives you a link of how you can watch them on social media on facebook watch and youtube and then also you can give get by clicking on ask artistically are you can click on that and find how you can email the podcast and send me a question for me to answer. But if you go on to the Instagram page, which, as I said to you earlier on, it is at the Rainbow Project, I'm going to start hosting some, some Instagram lives over on. So if you go on to Instagram at New Rainbow Project from uh, tomorrow, which is Thursday the 14th of September at 3pm, I'm going to be doing an Instagram live where you can just ask me for 20-30 minutes any questions you may want and I'm hoping to make this a regular thing after the podcast interviews and as well as doing some lives with other people and so the next interview I'll be putting out Maybe go for Sunday, or if not, it'll be a Tuesday or Wednesday, as with Lydia Powell. Thanks for watching and listening. Goodbye.